hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 8, 21 through 36. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river, at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of your father's houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambushes on the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commission to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river and they aided the people and the house of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church. If you are new, I, I planted this church with a few friends, uh, which will be tw 11 years ago in July. So we're about to coming up on our 11-year anniversary, and we have seen God take a handful of people, and through his power and by his spirit, multiply us to two congregations, one here and one over in Moline. And last week, we had over 600 people worshiping between our two churches. And all of this is to God's glory. <clears throat> if you are new, we are currently in a bit of a rebuilding season here. In the life of our church, we've paused our missional community gatherings to retrain and equip our missional community leaders and to better serve our church for uh, future ministry ahead. And uh, since we paused these missional community gatherings, if you are newer to the church, we really have two avenues where you can get more involved, meet some new people, and come to learn a little bit more about following Jesus at Sacred City. Ben mentioned uh, both of them, the Gospel-Centered Life class that's starting this afternoon. We really, really encourage you to go. And our Leadership Institute on Wednesday nights. Um, even though it's leadership, you say, I'm not in leadership. Um, ask anybody who's going. I think I think they'll tell you that it's beneficial for everyone, not just leaders, and uh, we would really invite you out there. There's usually about 100 of us there, and we've, we have a good time on Wednesday night, so you can find out more information from the weekly email, the bulletins in the back, or in the foyer. As we say every week, and we really mean it, we do not want you just to be a face in the crowd on a Sunday morning, but we do want you to find deep and meaningful community here at Sacred City, and so those two ways are ways that you can at least dip your toes in the water to see what we are all about. Now, <clears throat> how many of you guys enjoyed the weather yesterday? Yeah, 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 oh, wow, all right. Yes, really enjoyed it. That's a Midwesterner with one good day. That's what we do. I stayed outside from morning until dark, as long as I possibly could. We were trying to get a sunburn. Uh, 
And then you wake up today and it's just kind of like, oh, man, man that's, we had one great one, right? Well, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time studying the scriptures today. And uh, let's get back into the book of Ezra now. Just to whet your appetite a little bit, we only have, uh, after the, today, we have three more weeks in Ezra. And then we have kind of a weird, we had a weird chunk of time before the summer. The summer, we're spending the whole summer working our way through the, the book of Psalms. We're going to take a psalm a week and go through that. So that's going to be great. We had like six weeks beforehand. And we didn't really know, or five weeks, I don't remember what it was, but I don't, we didn't know what we were going to do. And I have been a little afraid of the book of Romans, okay? Now, why am I afraid of the book of Romans? Well, John Piper spent seven years preaching through the book of Romans, okay? The book of Romans is incredibly dense. You can preach a sermon on almost every single verse in the book of Romans. So what we're going to do is we're going to up John Piper. We're going to take 20 years to work through the book of Romans, okay? So we're just going to do it a little bit at a time. We're going to do it. We're going to kind of do a chapter, chapter now, and then we'll go to Psalms, and then we'll do a chapter in between next series and, and, and so on and so forth until by the time I retire, we'll be, sometime we'll make our way through the book of Romans. So in about three weeks, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start the book of Romans. That's what we're doing. So, But let me jump in, pray for us, and we can get after it this morning. <clears throat> gracious Father, you are gracious. That is your character. We proclaim that today in the liturgy. We heard it in the scriptures. Your grace is, is seen in many of your works. Uh, especially in the way that you've revealed yourself to us, that you gave us your word to teach us things about you, about us, about your plan of salvation, about what you've done that we could not find in any other way. We couldn't find it just by looking at creation. We can't find it just through our own experience. We need you to reveal yourself to us through your word. And so we thank you for giving us your word. But Father, we also confess that there's a lot of your word that we don't know that we don't understand. Many of us have even thrown out the Old Testament and not even, we don't even read it, don't even think about it. Uh, many of us have neglected books like Ezra. And so we have, have just practically thought in our minds or, or believed that Ezra doesn't have anything for us. Father, would you correct our thinking this morning? Would you direct us? Would you show us how your word is true, your word is living, your word is active, that we need all of your word to be uh, a disciple of you, to be properly shaped with a Christian worldview. And so would you help us study your text this morning and apply it to our lives? Would you help me as a communicator of your word who still is a sinful man? Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would it be all of you and none of me? And would uh, any error in what I say be attributed to me? And would anything true, right, good be attributed to you? Would you give your people uh, the ears to hear the difference between the two, those two things. And would your sheep hear your voice and respond to it this morning? I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, oh, by the way, it was really good. We dialed it back a little bit today and we sang some hymns. It was really good to hear you guys singing. So that was, at least I'm in the front row and it's, it's really good to hear you guys belting it. Maybe that was just Rob behind me. Now that I look, maybe it's just Rob behind me. It's all right, it was still good. Well, we're in Ezra chapter 8, if you want to open up your Bibles there, and I'm going to get us uh, reacquainted where we are at in the story. Remember, Israel, the people of God, have spent decades as a small, oppressed community living under Babylonian and then Persian rule. They were carried away from their homeland, and then their city and their temple were destroyed. Their entire Jewish culture was at risk of being lost forever. But then, this is how Ezra opened up, just as God had promised to do, 70 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, God opened up an opportunity for his people to return to their lands and rebuild their temple and to restore their, and rebuild their culture. And remember, this opportunity opened by God sovereignly opening up the heart of a couple kings. He opened up their heart, he gave these people favor, and then they began this rebuilding process. King Cyrus, if you remember, was the first king to issue a decree that allowed some of the early Israelite pioneers to return. They made the difficult 900-mile journey and spent the next 20 years uh, 
Obeying God, hit or miss, right? Working on the temple off and on. They did a really good job. They focused on it. They built it. And then they got tired. They started uh, worshiping idols. They got more concerned with their own home improvement projects rather than the temple. And what did God do? God sent some fire breathers, right? Not dragons, prophets, nearly the same thing. God sent prophets to yell at them. And he said, they said some very rude and offensive things to them, but thankfully, the people did not cancel those prophets. Thankfully, they listened to the prophets. I mean, Old Testament people, we've been canceling people for a long time. Old Testament prophets got canceled. Lots of them did, okay? But John the Baptist, whoosh, head cut off, canceled, New Testament prophet. But they don't. They actually listen to the prophet. They take the rebuke. They take the hard words. And they repent and they get back to work on God's mission, which is rebuilding the temple. Now, after they finished it, took them 20 years to finish it. After they finished it, God opened the heart of another king, King Darius, also known by his throne name, Artaxerxes. This king had the outstanding scribe and scholar, Ezra, as one of his counselors. Ezra was a man of God. He was a man of the scriptures, a man competent in the word of God. He knew what the scriptures said. He was, a, he was called in by, uh, by Artaxerxes, and he was given an opportunity to speak to the king. And when he had that opportunity, Ezra gave him biblical wisdom. Ezra gave him the scriptures, taught him what the word of God said about governance. And so this impressed the king so much that he made Ezra something of a secretary of state. And he sent him back to Israel, if you remember from a few weeks ago, for three things. To improve the right worship of God, to teach everyone who didn't know the laws of God, and to appoint civil magistrates and judges. And so Ezra went back with the blessing from the king to reform the whole society according to the word of God. That was Ezra's goal. Now today, we get to witness some of what was going on behind the scenes. I, I like this today. We get to go behind the curtain a little bit. Here's some of the questions that we can ask and answer today. Just what was it that Ezra said to the king? When Ezra got a moment with the king, what was Ezra actually saying? What was the advice he was giving? What was he telling the king about God? Secondly, how, was, how did Ezra have such boldness and such courage and such confidence that God would actually bless his endeavors? Did he possess some kind of secret knowledge that he guaranteed his success? Like, did, did Ezra have a dream? That he woke up in the middle of the night and, and God said, go talk to the king like he did with like some, or God spoke to him directly like he did with Moses. Or was Ezra just kind of like us uh, relying on previous revelation, re relying on the word of God already given? And then lastly, can we do what Ezra did? Can we work to reform our city? And, and can we even expect Ezra style success? Can we expect that here in our city? We're going to ask all these questions and answer them, hopefully. So, Ezra is giving us a, uh, kind of a glimpse behind the curtain. When the king said, you can go, what did Ezra do, right? What did Ezra do? He's retelling what happened right before they left for Persia, or left Persia for Jerusalem. The king gave his blessing to them to leave, to, again, improve the right worship of God, teach the law of God, to appoint civil magistrates and judges, to reform the whole society according to the word of God. The king gave him this blessing. Now what? Here we go, chapter 8, verse 21, let's read it. Then I, that's Ezra, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Okay, here's what happened. He gets the blessing, he's got the mission in front of him, He's ready to go. What does he do? He proclaims a fast. He proclaims a fast. Now, what is fasting? Now, some of us, we fast. We, we just came out of a fast. So we're like, don't talk about fasting right now. We just got out. I'm with you, okay? I fasted buying and drinking bourbon during, uh, during Lent. And so I'm 
I'm gladly partaking now. I'm waiting till next Lent, okay? I want to talk about fasting right now. But what is fasting? Fasting, and specifically here in our text, it's abstaining from something good, something that God gives us as good, uh, for an extended period of time to worship him, okay? So most of the time in, the, in scripture and here, when it says we're fasting, he's talking about food. We're, we're giving up food for a short amount of time, for a season of time, in order to seek God's blessing for something. Now, fasting isn't just an Old Testament thing people do. Jesus, in Matthew 6, teaches his disciples that they should fast. He says specifically to them in Matthew 6, when you fast, fast like this, okay? So we should still, Christians still should fast. Well, why? Why why should we fast? There's basically three main reasons that we are to fast. One, we fast during a season of repentance. When people were deeply distressed over their sin and guilt, they would both weep and fast. For example, Nehemiah assembled the people with fasting and in sackcloth, and they stood and confessed their sin. The people of Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth. That is messed up clothes to show, out, to show outwardly what they were doing with inwardly in their heart. Daniel sought God by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Literally would put ashes on their head. Prayed to the Lord his God and made confession of the sins of his people. And, and the apostle Paul, after his conversion, he was so moved uh, in repentance because of the persecution done to Christ and his church that for three days after his conversion, he neither ate nor drank, right? Ezra says here something similar. He says, we are fasting that we might humble ourselves before the Lord, okay? So what fasting is doing here, what he's doing is we want to we want to get a proper orientation to God. We want to be less self-focused and more God-focused. We're humbling ourselves before the Lord, so we are proclaiming a fast, okay? Well, the second reason Christians fast, we see this in our text as well, is we are to fast during special times or seasons of prayer, okay? So this is what's going on here in Ezra. The words prayer and fasting are often joined in scriptures anytime someone is experiencing a specially difficult circumstance or before any great endeavor. Jesus himself fasted immediately before his public ministry began. He went out in the desert and fasted. Remember that, 40 days, 40 nights. And the early church began to follow his example. This is why we fast for the season of Lent. And the church of Antioch fasted before Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their first missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas fasted themselves before appointing elders in every church in which they had planted. Okay, so Christians fast during special times of prayer. And we see it here. Um, they're, they're fasting to seek from God a safe journey for ourselves. Now, I'm going to get into this, why this is so scary and important. But they saw this great endeavor ahead of them. And they said, we need to fast and pray about this before we do it. The third reason, I'll just hit this briefly, that Christians fast is to develop the spiritual fruit of self-control. That self-control is developed by abstaining from certain things that our body really wants, our body really likes, whether it be, we get, we get really comfortable with sugar and with a lot of food and maybe with alcohol and maybe with exercise and maybe with extra sleep and all these, maybe with TV. We get really comfortable with these things. And in order to develop the spiritual fruit, uh, spiritual maturity requires self-control. And the, and the only way you can develop self-control is actually restricting yourself from certain things that you actually enjoy. Okay? So, when should we fast? We should fast in times of repentance. We should fast in times of special need. And we should fast when, we need, when we're lacking self-control and we need to grow in discipline. Now, that's the what and the when of fasting. How about the why? Why should we fast? Well, Jesus tells us again in Matthew 6, when teaching his disciples about fasting, that fasting, interestingly enough, comes with a reward. And you might ask, what kind of reward? I've already briefly mentioned a few. When you abstain from things that you enjoy, sometimes 
what that does is that it, it, when you take that away, immediately you feel your weakness. You feel your need. You didn't realize how dependent on that cup of coffee you were. That cup of coffee. See, my attitude is significantly altered before and after my morning cup of coffee, right? Even just the look on my face is altered, right? Before and after that morning cup of coffee. When you abstain from that, you realize I'm irritable in the morning. Didn't realize that, right? When you, maybe you have a drink before, an alcoholic drink before you go to bed at night and you don't realize that you have become, maybe not dependent, but at least it happens so consistently that once you take it away, now it feels weird. Feels, what do I do with my hands at this time, right? Feels really weird. That food, all these different things, shows all of these things. When we stop partaking in them for a season, it shows us our need, our weakness, and our meant to be our dependence on God, right? And so that's one of the repercussions, one of the blessings of fasting. It gives us a deeper awareness of God, a greater awareness of our own fragility, need, weakness, and dependence upon him. And also, um, we see here in, in, in our chapter, we, we're meant, the, the reward for fasting and the reward for prayer is meant to be, and I'm gonna say it, it's meant, answered prayer is one of the blessings. That, that, that's what they're seeking here, right? Either answered prayer or the resources needed to persevere their circumstances. This is why Ezra is fasting. Look at chapter, chapter, uh, 20, or chapter eight, verse 21. Now the second half of that. To seek from him, God, to seek from God a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. They're about to go on a 900-mile arduous journey, and they're asking God for traveling mercies here. They're asking God to take care of them, their children, and all the stuff that they're carrying. Now, this is fascinating to me. Here's the situation. Ezra, we got to think about this. This isn't just a family vacation here. Ezra is loaded down with goods. What do I mean by goods? Gold, silver, bronze, all kind of utensils. The offering that all the people had given to to go beautify the house of God. He is loaded down with a ton of that. I have no idea. Over a million dollars worth. So think about this. They're all going on a 900-mile journey through very difficult Persian territory, okay? Some of it through the desert. This was a, a place that bandits came and they hijacked people and they, they stole goods. And on top of having all of that, he's got his kids with him. And this is not an armored vehicle, guys. You know, this is like a chariot or think of a horse-drawn wagon type of thing. That's what's going on. Now, can you imagine the anxiety that would go before this trip, right? You've already got, do you have the spare tire? Do you have all this stuff going on? You've packed everything. Can we make it? You've got the kids. We have enough food. But now we've got a ton of riches. We're carrying riches. And we have, and this is what we're going to see. We have no protection around us that we can see. This means they are a target for bandits and they are at great risk of losing everything, even the lives of their, their life and their children. But this is what's so fascinating to me. Look at verse 22. For I, Ezra, was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had, oh, pause. This is so funny. He obviously did not talk to his wife, okay? Because his wife would have been like, you talk to the king and you get an escort. If you want me and this baby coming with you, we better have armed guards around here. You're carrying how much money? Uh-uh, no, right? No, he doesn't. This, he, this is what he says. I was ashamed to go to the king and ask for soldiers and horsemen to, to, to guard us. Why? Why was he ashamed? Keep reading. <clears throat> Since we had told the king, okay, here we go. Now we get to see what's going on behind the curtain. When he had the opportunity to speak to the king, what kind of stuff was he saying? Here's what Ezra said. Quote, 
The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Very simple, very simple gospel presentation. Very simple understanding of who God is. If you seek him, his hand will be upon you. And if you reject him, his curse will be upon you. Okay, very simple. Which also makes sense why this king is like, uh, sure, have all this gold, right? He wants the blessing of God. He wants the hand of God on him. He doesn't want this curse upon him, right? So we see what he's actually saying here. Now, this is interesting to me. Why would Ezra be ashamed to ask for help, right? This is why. It's not, <laughs> it's not because he's a man. He doesn't want to ask for directions. He doesn't want to ask for help, okay? This is why. Asking for help, asking for the king to send troops around him to guard him would compromise the message he told the king. What was his message? The hand of our God for good is on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So if God's hand is upon us, can we expect his protection? Now listen, where did he get that? Was that a word from God that he just got like Moses? Or was it a dream that he had like a prophet? Or was Ezra, just like us, dependent upon past revelation, dependent upon the word of God given beforehand by the prophet? Listen to this. Here's what God said to the Israelites. Listen, before they were carried off to Babylon, we find this in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14, You're going to recognize one of these verses, more than likely, the middle one, but you're going to get some context for it today. For thus says Yahweh, the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, pause, before he sent them into Babylon, he told them, after 70 years, I would bring you back, okay? So he already knew exactly when that was going to happen, and this is when it's happening right now. It had been 70 years and they were being brought back, okay? Keep going. This is what God says. After 70 years, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. You hear that promise? You hear that promise from God? I will do it. I will bring you back after 70 years. For I know the plans I have for you. Here we go declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Here, listen. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Okay, look at the logic here. God will bring you back after 70 years, okay? He will hear from you right? He has those, he's going to bring you back to this place. Then you will call upon me and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore, look, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares Yahweh, the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Ezra here did not need a personal word from the Lord. Ezra did not need a dream. Ezra did not need TBN, okay? Ezra did not need to send money to some fake prophet and receive a word from the Lord. He did not need to go to a medium or necromancer or any other. He didn't need to go get his palm read. Ezra had everything he needed in the Old Testament already that had already been given him. So Ezra here, what is he doing? Ezra is standing on the promises of God. The promises that have already been given. When he says, when he tells the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, all he's doing is putting the scriptures together from Jeremiah. He's saying, it's been 70 years. He's already, look at this, he's already sent people back. The fortunes are going with them. So he said, when I call out to him, he would hear me. So right now, we're gonna call out to God and expect he's going to bless this endeavor. Saying, we have sought the Lord. We have found him. And this seems like the time when God is going to restore our fortunes and bring us back to Jerusalem. Listen, therefore, 
I am going to trust him in this sketchy situation. I am going, I am choosing to walk by faith. I am standing on the promises of the Old Testament word of God, and I'm going to walk by faith in this sketchy situation. And I'm going to do that in front of the king. Here's what we need to see. Ezra's faith in the word of God. Ezra's confidence in the word of God. Him standing on the, pres- the promises of God empowered his obedience in front of the king. He trusted God's word, stood on God's promises, and then took a huge step of faith and refused to compromise. Christian, this is what it looks like to walk by faith. We believe the word of God. We trust in what God has already done for us, what God has already said to us in the scriptures. And then by faith, we cling to those promises and we stand on those promises and we say, come hell or high water, we're going to obey God in this. I don't care what the circumstances look like. I'm standing on the word of God. This is what it looks like to walk by faith. We believe We stand on God's promises and then we obey. That's the logic of the gospel. Jesus, again, uses this same logic in Matthew 6. Where he talks about giving, praying, and fasting. In the first four verses of chapter 6, he says, The Christian believes that everything they own is actually given by God. That God has made us stewards of our resources. So everything I have was, has been given to me by God. All of my income comes directly from God. Therefore, since it's all his and he loaned it to me, I give at least 10% of it back to him to fund his mission. Logic. Do you see the logic of the gospel? Listen, I believe it's all his. I believe he's blessed me with it. Therefore, I obey. I give. He goes on. In verses 5 through 15 in chapter 6, he says, the Christian believes that Jesus gives us access to God. He brings us into the throne room of God. That means we can come into God's presence and make our requests known to him and speak with him because Jesus has forgiven our sins and given us his righteousness. So the logic of the gospel is, since Jesus has given me righteousness and stands in the presence of God, I believe that, therefore, I pray to God. Therefore, I make my request known to him. Therefore, I ask him for things. I ask him to meet my needs. I ask him to take care of my family. I ask him to, here in Ezra, to protect my family and all the riches we got on the way back to Jerusalem. And then the third thing we see Jesus teach in Matthew 6, he says, the Christian believes that man does not live by bread alone but on every word that comes from the Father. Through Jesus, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. Therefore, we fast sometimes. Therefore, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. Therefore, we fast. See, believe and obey. That's the logic of the gospel. And Jesus promised in Matthew 6, three different times, he says this, That Christians who pray, give, and fast would receive a reward for their faith and obedience. Those who believe and obey in financial giving will receive a reward from the Father. Quote, listen, Matthew 6, 4. So that your giving may be in secret and your Father, God, who sees in secret will reward you. We believe, we obey, And God rewards us. Do you see that? He goes on. He says, but when you pray, go into your room. Shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Believe. Obey. Reward. Lastly, he says, those who believe rightly and fast rightly will also receive a reward from the father. When when you fast, Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Believe, obey, reward. 
So here is Ezra's logic of faith. He says this, I told the king that God's hand of blessing is on us for good. If God is for us, who can be against us? If I go to the king and tell him I'm scared to make this journey without his protection, what am I saying about God? I'm saying that God is not able to protect me. Well, then what good is his hand of blessing? Do you see this? So he's afraid to go to the king. He's ashamed to go to the king and ask for armed guards. This is an, this is an opportunity for him to stand on the promise of God and exercise his faith and do what God says to do, pray, fast, and give, and then trust God's gonna reward him however God wants to reward him. This is an opportunity of faith for him and It's a missional opportunity for the king. Think about this. This is an evangelistic opportunity for the king. Ezra is demonstrating his faith and the power of God for this king. He wants the king to see that God is real, that God is faithful. That God is going to meet his need in his providence. That God is powerful and good and can be trusted. Now, how, how do we know, how do we know that, this, that that's what's actually going on? Because in Nehemiah, here's the situation. Everything Ezra has asked from the king, the king's given him. Right? Every, so far. I need gold. I need, I, need the, I need the ornaments. I need all the stuff. Yeah, yeah, go, go, go. I need blessings. Sure, go. I need people. Yeah, go. I need priests. Yeah, sure, go. I need to appoint judges and magistrates. Yeah, sure, go, do it. I'm going to do it according to the word of God. Yeah, go, do it. Why doesn't he just go and ask for one more thing? Because it's going to counter the message he, of the gospel he's already told him that God will protect us. God's hand of blessing is on us for good. That's why it counters the message. Now, we know this because Nehemiah, when Nehemiah goes to the king, the king goes, hey, why don't, you take my, why don't you take my armed guards with you? And Nehemiah's like, thank the Lord, God's with us, right? But the king offered that to Nehemiah. The king doesn't offer that to Ezra, and Ezra thinks this will be compromising my message. So, it's, so this was a, literally a personal matter of faith, a matter of conscience in the moment for, for Ezra. So for Ezra, for Ezra, it would be a sin to ask for help. For Ezra, it would be a clear lack of faith in the message he's already proclaimed to ask for help. So instead of losing faith or showing, looking bad in front of the king, Ezra calls a fast and the people respond. Look at verse, well, we see verse 23. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Remember Jeremiah, if you call on me, I will answer. I will hear you. I will listen. They know God answered and God listened. Man, and listen, this part, we're going to skip to verse 31. I wish we had more information here. This is the part God's given us everything we need for life and godliness. It hasn't given us everything we wish we, we, we would know in, this, in the text, okay? Look at verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. Here we go again. The hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. Okay. They prayed, they fasted, God answered their prayer. He delivered them from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes on the way. What I, what I want to know, what's not here, is how, how did he protect them? This is the good part of the movie I want to see. Right? The word that, it's, that he uses there delivers them. That word is not used like it just nothing bad happened, like they made it safe and sound. That's not what happened. When it says he delivered them from the enemy and from ambushes on the way means they encountered enemies and they were ambushed. Ezra, give me the details. 
Did you have to fight him off, right? Like, I want to see the picture. I want to see your wife with the frying pan beating somebody out of the back of the book, the back of the thing, you know? Like, how, how bad was it? I want to know. Well, he doesn't tell us, right? We don't know. All we know is that they encountered difficulties and God protected them. We don't know if they had to fight for their life. We don't know how, if, you know, he just put a bubble around them and they just floated through. We, we have no idea what happened, right? But we do know Ezra gives all the credit to God. And everyone knows when they get back, this was a miracle that happened. Think about it. We just took a wagon load full of gold through a, hor- through a, um, or through a terrible neighborhood and we didn't get killed and robbed. Everyone gets back and they know this was because the hand of the Lord for good was on us. And how do they respond? Well, look, we, we, we read in verse 32, we came to Jerusalem, well, they made it. And there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, with him Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Chozabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. The whole was counted. We didn't lose one thing. We didn't lose one penny on that whole journey. Why? Because the hand of our God was upon us. And what did they do? Verse 35. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. What did they do when they got back? Worshiped. They worshiped. I want you to see the logic of faith here. I want you to see the logic of the gospel here. I believe the word of God. I exercise my faith and stand on the promises of God, and I pray, and I fast, and I give, and God rewards it however he wants to reward it. But here he rewards it with safe passage. And after I have the answered prayer, I worship God because of it. This is our life. We stand on the word of God. We put our faith in the word of God. We pray and fast and give towards parent, whatever it is, parenting, buying a new home, starting a new business, whatever it is. And we leave the results in the hand of God. And then when God answers, we worship him over and over and over. Not based on how we feel. This is the logic of faith. It's the logic of the gospel. So specifically for us this morning, what does this text mean for us today? Collectively as a church, our mission is to obey Jesus by preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches, and renewing our cities by building Christian culture for the glory of God. We are to stand on the promises of God while we do that work. In order for us to continue to do that, we need a permanent home base. We need a building where we can all worship together, hopefully we can all worship together under one roof. It would be great if we could have one service with our kids in the same building. Oh, what a blessing that would be. We need a building where we have the ability to host classes. And Sacred City Youth doesn't have to have its own building somewhere across campus. We could have classes during the week and where we don't have to set up and tear down all of our services every Sunday and Good Friday and Christmas and Christmas Eve and all the other stuff that we do. Set up, tear down every single week. We've been doing this for 11 years. Most of you have no idea what it takes to pull off this gathering. Just look at all this stuff up here. That's a lot. All of it goes to the basement. All of it gets carried up here every single week and carried down after you leave service. When you're eating lunch, they're putting stuff away. All the stuff on the chairs, all the communion, the cameras, the tech, the sound stuff back there, everything in the lobby, all of that stuff gets set up and tear, tore down every single service or every single week, and it's been going on for 11 years. And we're not, doing, we're not doing this because those people are complaining, because they don't. They don't complain. They're great servants, and they, they, they love to serve the Lord. 
We're doing it because we want to be able to use that energy on something else, something more constructive for the glory of God, right? The time has come, we believe, the elders believe, to believe God for a new building and to step out in faith through prayer, fasting, and giving towards this new work. Now listen, I am, I've been, for past six to eight months, I've been checking out every building I could possibly find. I've been beating the bushes out there. We, there's not too many buildings available. The, the ones that most of you are aware of, yes, we've already checked on them, okay? Uh, you know, but we're still hopeful. We're still pursuing them. We don't know what God's gonna do. We don't know. We're just trusting that God's gonna open up a door. We've got some irons in the fire out there, but we are just praying. That we wanna start fasting and we wanna start giving towards this, this future building. Now, this week, unbeknownst to this person, I'm working in this text and I'm praying and I'm asking God and I'm wanting to hear from the Lord and this person calls me and they said that they want to, their family wants to start off our new building campaign and our building fund with a sacrificial matching pledge. Now, what a matching pledge is, is they, they promise to give up to a certain amount, and as much as the body of Christ responds to that, they will match it, okay? So here's the idea. You give 1,000, they give 1,000. You give five, they give five. You give 10, they give 10. This family believes in the mission of God here at the church, and they said, we offer this matching pledge of $100,000 to start off this building campaign. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Praise God, right? And that means... Every one of our gifts in this next season, the impact of that gift literally gets doubled for the kingdom of God, right? Now, when I hear that, I, like Ezra, want to say, the hand of our God for good is on us. That the wind is, his wind is in our sails. That he's the one building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? He's got the perfect building out there. I don't know where it is, right? I don't know where it is yet, but he's got it and he's preparing it for us and we need to be ready so when that building does come available, we've got the money in the bank to actually make the purchase and make it happen. So please, we're gonna, you're gonna hear more about this in the future. Praying, we're gonna be praying specifically about this. We're gonna have some prayer nights here at the church. We're gonna be fasting. We have some specific days that we're fasting for this and we're asking you to give. We're asking you to give. Your gift is double, doubled in this next season. So up to $100,000, and that can start our new building fund off in an amazing way. So now, as I close here, you might, I just say that randomly. Um, <laughs> now, if it's in the 40s, I better say that. It's up there. I'm looking at a clock up there. All right, so now you might ask, Justin, how do we know the hand of the Lord is upon us? How do we know the blessing of the Lord is upon us? Basically the same way Ezra knew it. But we're not just going back and parsing through the Old Testament, okay? Now, there's nothing wrong with parsing through the Old Testament, right? That, that, that's good and amen. We have something better than the Old Testament. We have the Logos, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ the son of the living God, come in the flesh. Now listen, this is interesting. When we can see that, we should be able, let me say that, we should be able to see God's hand of blessing clearer than Ezra did because of Jesus. Think about what Jesus has done for us. Jesus came, lived the life that we failed to live. Jesus wasn't just our example on how to live. He was our substitute. He lived in your place. He lived for you. He obeyed God where you don't obey God. He did everything for you to earn the blessing of God, the hand of favor of God for you. But think about, he didn't just obey God perfectly. Think about what else Jesus did. On the cross, Jesus took the hand of cursing. He took the hand of smashing. He took the hand of pain from his father to secure for you forever the hand of blessing. 
How do we know God's hand of blessing is upon us? Because Jesus earned it for us. Jesus purchased it for us. Jesus took all the wrath of God so we can have the hand of blessing. And so when we're preaching Jesus, we should expect the hand of blessing at our back. We see this in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 21. They said they were preaching the Lord Jesus, and this is what it says, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. That's what Jesus secured for us, the hand of blessing from the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we get the hand of blessing when we deserve the hand of cursing. We deserve your wrath and judgment, but we get the hand of blessing because Jesus took it for us. Father, this is a huge um, endeavor that you've called us to, to find a building, to purchase a building. It's a big, it's a big job, and none of us can do it by ourselves. I thank you for inspiring that, uh, the, the, the member to make that large sacrificial gift to match ours, Father God. I thank you for starting us off with such, in such an encouraging way. And I pray now that you would help all of us, every single person in this room, to believe that you've done it all for us, to stand on your promises that you will meet our needs and you have met all of our needs, that all of our resources are from you, and that you would help us obey you by giving sacrificially to see this building, wherever, whatever it is, purchased for your glory, that we could have roots in our community, that we could literally have a place to call our home to do gospel ministry for the next decade into the future. Father God, would you inspire your people? Would you give them the faith to believe? Would you bring glory to your name? And lastly, Father, for those who are in this room who they haven't embraced you by faith, I pray that they wouldn't hear us asking for their money today. They would hear us asking for them to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is better to us than our money. He is better to us than our riches and our homes and anything else. Jesus is so good to us. Jesus, now as we come and we celebrate your supper, we just thank you. We thank you for your hand of blessing. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for you being willing to be betrayed and beaten and crucified and killed so that we could have life and life more abundantly. I pray that we would eat this meal as Christians um, enjoy knowing that you've called us to do something and you've equipped us to do something and you're going to fulfill this mission through your spirit, that you are going to be faithful. So I pray that you would help us eat this enjoy and worship this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.